It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm Patty Roberts, talking to you here from St. Mary's University School of Law, and I have with me as a guest Angela Winfield. She is the Chief Diversity Officer for the Law School Admission Council, which is a not-for-profit organization that promotes quality access and equity in law and education. Before joining LSAC, Angela was an Associate Vice President for Inclusion and Workforce Diversity at Cornell University. Welcome, Angela, and I would love if you would tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey to where you are now at LSAC. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patty, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Um, just a little bit of background on me and how I ended up here. It was a nonlinear path, but a really wonderful one here. So I got my start because I wanted to be a lawyer, and I wanted to be a lawyer from the time that I was very, very young, before I even knew what practicing law really meant, quite frankly. It was something that was intriguing to me. And then as I got older and got into you know, junior high and high school, I was fortunate enough to go to a public high school that actually had a law academy at the time. Um, so I got to get exposure to what it meant to practice law. And that's what I wanted to do. So I did that for a good um, seven years. And while I was practicing, one of the things that I noticed was that there wasn't a lot of diversity in the profession. Um, and for me, um, you know, I've got three marginalizing identities. I'm a woman, I'm black, and I'm blind, right? So those things were things I thought I could you know, set aside and that I'm just gonna be a mainstream attorney, I'm gonna be a litigator, I'm gonna do trials and appeals, and that's what I was doing. But as I was looking at my path and I was looking around, I was like, there's not a whole lot of people that look like me. Why is that? And in the you know private sector with law firms, I was looking, I was like, you know, if I'm going to be partner, that means I actually own a piece of this organization and this business, and it doesn't reflect me, right? It's, it's not necessarily inclusive. And it wasn't just one firm. It was an industry-wide thing. And that's when I realized that my lived experience and the things that were uh, important to me privately and personally that I thought I could keep out of the workplace, I really couldn't. And that's when I started to make the shift to not only doing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work as, you know, as a side, um, you know, to my, you know, regular mainstream legal practice, but I wanted to make that full time. So that's when I transitioned and started doing this work at Cornell, um, which was absolutely wonderful and um, really, really gratifying. I was getting a lot of traction. And then LSAC came a knocking um, and I saw <laughs> the, um, the posting for the position. I was like, oh, this is why I left legal practice, full-time legal practice, is to make an impact across you know, an industry and across legal education. So I ended up here and it has been a wonderful, what has it been so far? Three and a half months, an absolutely wonderful three and a half months so far. Wow. Well, an impact industry-wide, you couldn't have gone to a better place to have that kind of impact. Um, so 
congratulations on the new position and on your nonlinear path. I'm a big believer in nonlinear paths. I've taken one myself. <laughs> um, yeah, the way you way of ending up where you're supposed to be. You know? That's exactly right. A firm believer in that. Um, I was interested to hear, I'd like to go back a little bit to your high school pre-law program. Um, you indicated that there was a, a focus on law in your high school. And tell us a little bit about how that has shaped your thoughts about pipeline programs. Absolutely. It has had a tremendous impact on um, the way I think about pipeline programs. The way that I put it is my experience in high school, and I went to a public high school, um, a wonderful public high school. It was the only one in the town that I grew up is in Newburgh, New York. And at the time, they had a law academy. And what that allowed me to do was to be able to see myself in the profession, to really understand and like meet an attorney. Um, and I did. I had a mentor who was a local practitioner in my town, and he took me to my very first deposition. I had no clue what was going on, but he was patient enough with me and he answered my questions. When I asked, okay, so what is this for? How do you use this? And he told me all about it. And then he took me to a partner's meeting at his firm. Wow. It was really, yes, it was amazing to me to be able to see, okay, this is what a law firm looks like. And at, this, at the time I did have some sight, so I was able to see, okay, you know, everyone's wearing suits. I could see myself in a suit, you know, and, and, and it was just, you know, it's just one of those things. You don't really see yourself there because what you see of practicing, at least for me, I didn't have any attorneys in my family. I saw what I saw on TV. <laughs> you know, right. That's what I thought practicing law was, but to actually be exposed to it. And then of course, the academic exposure. So, you know, getting to read cases and learn about case law and how the judicial system works, all of that was very, very um, critical and pivotal in my journey. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that at my public school. And that certainly carries over to how I think about pipeline programs now and what we can do to not only expose people who may not have that, you know, natural exposure to the law, um, but also support and bolster them so they, they have successful outcomes. That's a great story. Um, one thing that I know I regularly hear in legal education is the importance of having um, persons of color at the front of the classroom or at the head of the, you know, in the dean's office um, or people who are more like whoever the students are, maybe that they're female or maybe that they, they have a, a disability, a visible disability. So. Um, what you're saying really resonates that it was the first time you saw yourself in the profession and how great that you had that opportunity as early as high school. I was um, really delighted when AALS uh, uh, had done the before the JD study a few years ago and saw how students um, oftentimes were making the decision to go to law school even before college. So um, if more high schools had a program like yours did, I think we'd see a lot of uh, changes in, in the demographics. Absolutely. So LSAC has been great in providing funding for programs that support pipeline initiatives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Sure thing. So LSAC is really committed to the pipeline and to increasing exposure for marginalized, folks with marginalized identities. One of our signature programs 
that we fund is the PLUS program, the Pre-Law Undergraduate Scholars Program. And I actually really love that acronym because what I told the students this year in my opening remarks is that this is really additive, right? These students have what they need to be successful, PLUS is just additive, right? It gives them that exposure that they wouldn't have given um, you know, their backgrounds and you know, you know, the opportunities that have not been there for them. That's what PLUS provides. So we partner with of law schools um, who host the programs. And it's a wide range of experiences that these students get. Um, not only do they get exposure to, you know, what does it mean to actually apply to law school? What is the LSAT all about? How do I prepare for the LSAT? Um, what does it mean to write a personal statement? Um, they get all of that kind of nuts and bolts uh, training and exposure, but they also get a sense of community. So they get that exposure to mentors in the legal profession. They get to speak with attorneys and judges and folks who are practicing in all different sorts of areas of law. So they, they, they know that it's not just trials and appeals. There's lots of areas of law to explore. They also get uh, depending on which uh, law school program they're in with PLUS, they get um, belongingness work. You know, how do you find a sense of belonging in law school? What are the things that you may encounter as a, a, a minoritized law student? How do you deal with things like microaggressions? How do you remember what your focus is? All of that stuff is in these programs as well. So it's a really, um, you know, wonderful thing that LSAC has put a lot of resources behind. And in the, my time here, you know, what I'm hoping to do and what I plan to do is we're taking a wholesale assessment at these programs because they've been very, very good, but I'm all about improving because one thing that hasn't changed is the actual demographics of the legal profession. It's been very slow to change. And I want to see how can we make programs like this more effective and also, how can we strengthen that handoff from a pre-law program into our law schools all the way through from pre-law to practice so that the pipeline, you know, the full pipeline is reinforced all the way throughout and folks are getting the support that they need to be successful. That's terrific. Um, in my conversation with Kelly Testy, the president and CEO of LSAC, uh, she mentioned the expansion that you all are doing to the Law Hub program and that you're doing exactly that from pre-law to practice, um, reaching out to support individuals during that journey. Um, as far as increasing the, um, the minority representation um, or just representation in the profession of those typically underrepresented, um, are there innovations you have in mind that are on the horizon? That's a great question. And I'll be really honest, it's early days for me. I've definitely got some ideas. Um, but for me, the most important thing is to hear from our community. Um, so I am embarking on a listening tour where I am reaching out to and having conversations with many of our stakeholders, so law schools, pre-law programs, um, students, other pipeline programs, both in the legal industry, outside the legal industry, chief diversity officers at law firms. I really want to understand the landscape. But that being said, um, yes, I do have a real, you know, I'm, I'm kind of funny. I have a real bias towards action. 
and I have a bias <laughs> towards, you know, to, towards making positive um, change. So with all of these discussions that I'm having, what I'm hoping to do is synthesize and kind of decide what are the um, areas where LSAC can be most impactful and be able to have that innovation. I've got some, you know, nigglings of ideas and some inclinations of where that might be, but without having a full, um, you know, input from the stakeholders and the folks that this would um, impact, I can't really say. But from broad, from a really broad perspective, one thing that I know that we're going to have to lean into and look at is standardized testing, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the elephant in the room that always yep. comes up. Um, we can't ignore it. We've got to really dig in there and see, you know, how can we um, create systemic change, right? Because the LSAT was created as an equity tool, right? To help reduce bias. I want to take a look at that. Is that what it's really doing? And if it's not, how do we improve that so that we can diversify through testing? Mm -hmm. The second area um, is certainly intersectionality, right? So looking at how can we innovate in our program design um, so that we're creating programs that are inclusive across the board. And this is what I mean by that. We have things like race-based programs, right? That are really looking at race as a minoritized identity, which is wonderful. And I think it's important to do that. But what we can't forget is when we're designing a program based on race inclusion within that group, we are going to have folks who are black that are LGBTQ plus. We are gonna right. have folks who are black or Latina that have disabilities. We're gonna have folks who are Asian that have other parts of their identities that may be first gen. You know, so we have all of that there. So how do we begin to design programs that can meet people where they are? So we're not sending them. I know we can't do it all in one program, but I, there's just something about sending people to like, okay, if you wanna be seen and heard for being black, you're gonna go over here. If you want to be seen and heard for being a woman we're going to go over send you over to this place how do, how do we wrap this in and say you know what we have a diversifying population as a nation in the u.s and we also want to have a diversifying legal profession how do we build that in that's where i think we have lots of room for innovation i love that you're looking at these programs and uh the, the your bias towards action is considering um, all of the differences that our students might have um, because when we say that one size doesn't fit all when we're looking at the majority of our students or the majority of people who are representative in the profession um, of course that doesn't mean as you've indicated that the minority is by itself um, a, a an organization of people who all have the same needs. So I applaud you for looking at that and, and embarking on your listening tour. I'm especially grateful that you are part of LSAC and looking at this as a person who herself has a disability. Um, that has no doubt um, created some different challenges for you than someone who has full sight. Um, and so having that experience um, personally uh, must be tremendously helpful in designing um, programs professionally that will address those students who also have um, disabilities. Can you tell us a little bit about how your experience is informing that work? Yeah, and it, and it does. You know, it's interesting because because of my lived experience, 
you know, my story does two things. One, I know it's very inspirational for people, right? And, I, and I'm walking proof that yes, it's possible, right? You can overcome all sorts of challenges or all sorts of obstacles and, you know, things not being designed for you and still be successful. And I think that sort of hope and inspiration is really, really important for people, right? You know, what it also Absolutely. does for me is it motivates me because just because I did it, and just because I overcame obstacles does not mean that we don't need to tear down those obstacles, right? It just right. helps me yeah. to be able to see them a little bit better and, you know, and be open to the obstacles that I don't see, right? Because even though I have the marginalized identities, I don't have all of them, but it creates a, a level of empathy that I find is really, really important when doing this work and the ability to you know, hear and listen to people and say, okay, yep, I, I, I understand. I may not understand exactly, but I understand the concept. And I think that is really helpful when you're looking at both you know, structural and systemic changes, which need to happen and institutional changes, which need to happen, but that takes a really long time. We can still identify those and work on those and that's one one path, but the other path is then also providing the appropriate level of support and resources for those individuals who are coming along while these systemic changes are taking place over, you know, years. Well, and I, I'll be interested to hear from you if you think that legal education has made uh, more progress in addressing the, the differences of those who come to the um, to our schools with disabilities, or has the profession, or are we all woefully behind? You know, I am hopeful. So I think we've made some change. Um, I don't think that we've made enough change. And I do think there's a lot of work to be done, um, but it's not, I'm positive and excited about the work that needs to be done. You know, I, I think what has happened, and especially in the legal profession, if we want to talk about disability, because it's a good example of it, there's still a lot of attitudinal barriers around disability in the legal profession. Um, there's a lot of stigma around it. Um, there are barriers when it comes to requesting accommodations for exams and tests. There's, um, you know, barriers when it comes to um, applying for licensure and bar and, and admission to the bar, right? What, depending on what type of disability you have and particularly around um, mental health conditions, right? So I think there's a lot of education and growth that needs to happen. And also, you know, taking a hard look at the legal profession itself and what does it really mean to be successful and what do you really need to have to be successful? I know in my experience, you know, I have had, you know, I've had mentors, I told you about all the good and the positive, but I've also had attorneys, um, you know, say to me, I have no idea how you could practice law. You know, I, you know, they've told me, and this was actually during an interview, you know, they said, I, you have all the right answers, you know, you, you have the schooling, um, but I know what I do as an attorney, and I just don't know how I could do it if I couldn't see, I, I don't have confidence that you can do this. And that's something that, you know, is often an undercurrent. And you know, I, I was shocked that someone would say that so bluntly, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so front, but you know what, I think a lot of people probably think that. Right. And, and, and I think that there's a lot of work that we need to do to say, you know what, an attorney doesn't look one particular way. 
Um, there's lots of identities that can be successful and that are actually needed to provide um, you know, representation and to really reflect what a justice system should be. The private sector has really learned and understood around DEI and they don't get it right either. So I'm not saying that <laughs> the private sector is perfect in terms mm -hmm. of like corporations, but they understand that when you have diverse perspectives, diverse identities, diverse um, uh, backgrounds coming together to work at a, pr a problem and create a solution, you get more innovation, you get more progress. I think the legal industry needs to start to embrace that because we really need innovation and progress for the justice system. And I think diversity will help us along those way, along that way. Well, I'm, I'm very sorry that an, an interviewer would ask you that question, but I know that people do, that people um, don't show the, the respect and grace that we would like them to all the time. Uh, and I'm just curious because there might be some law students listening to this or maybe even young associates. Do you mind sharing how you responded in that moment, that moment where there's a power differential and you've given all the right answers, but the attorney um, is unconvinced that you for whatever reason and with the, the identity that you have cannot do the job. How does one respond to that or how did you respond? Yeah, so I'm a little snarky. <laughs> so, you know, what I told him is I said, you know, I really don't know you and what your capabilities are. Um, so I don't know if you'd be able to practice law being blind, um, but I know myself and I know what I'm capable of and I, I, I know my abilities and I can do this job. Um, so that's what I told him. It was very satisfying in the moment. I still didn't get an offer from that firm. <laughs> <laughs> their <laughs> loss, their loss. Well, I, you know, looking back, yes. Um, but, you know, there are doubts when things like that happen. You know, there was a moment in my career where I was like, is anyone going to hire an attorney like me? And yes, there was. There, you know, there certainly were firms that were very willing and very interested. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to keep that in mind. Um, when we're making these sorts of decisions and when we're you know, trying to diversify the pipeline, that we not only have to do the work of diversifying the pipeline, we've also got to do the work on the back end of the pipeline to make sure that there's going to be an inclusive environment waiting for these diverse attorneys that are coming up through. Yes. And one of the things that you mentioned um, was mental health and accommodations related to mental health and and disabilities that some students and, and attorneys are coming to the profession with as far as mental health goes. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding uh, the role that firms should play um, or even law schools related to the increasing um, reporting of mental health issues. I'm not sure that we have an increase in mental health challenges among our students, but we certainly have increased transparency uh, because there's less stigma involved in um, ensuring that one has a, a challenge with mental health issues. Um, so do you see progress on that front in the profession? Again, I'm hopeful that we can make progress. I do see more law firms um, recognizing that um, we do need to make accommodations. We do need to provide the proper supports. And we also need to destigmatize um, mental health conditions because it is uh, a natural part of the human experience, quite frankly. And if we look at some of the data and research that has been done uh, by the ABA and others, our profession has significantly higher rates 
of mental health conditions, of depression, anxiety, of substance abuse, um, of all of those things. And we can't get better. And by better, I mean inclusive and make these things go away by not looking at them. We actually have to look at them and say, okay, well, how do we provide proper support? How do we provide you know, flexibility, accommodations, whatever is needed so that people can still be successful because they can't. Like having a mental health condition is not, in my mind, uh, a sentence that says you can't practice law. It's just not. It means you're gonna. You might need to do it a little differently than other people do it. You might need uh, a different schedule. You might need something uh, like that. But accommodations. You know, one thing that I say about accommodations is we make them all the time for people that don't have disabilities. We right. make accommodations in lots of contexts. We've just got to get into a shift where you know what? It's okay to accommodate for things like disabilities. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you're talking about how we can accommodate, and we do accommodate all the time, things that either we uh, admit are disability accommodations or just things like uh, a, a prior expert in special education advocacy that I used to work with um, used to talk about how a chair is an accommodation, right? That we're not, we're not standing all day, but we don't think about it that way. Um, one of the, the ways that we can accommodate differences um, in joining the profession or joining law schools is through alternative pathways. You mentioned the uh, standardized testing elephant in the room and, and is that in any way biased or um, uh, eliminating to some people with some experiences. Um, so what are you thinking or working on regarding alternative pathways? And if it's too early, I totally understand you're, you're pretty new there, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, no, it's it's still very, very early, um, but I can tell you what I shared during my interview um, process, which was very thorough um, for this job. When they asked me, it's like, you know, additional pathways, right? And one of the things that I came in um, hoping to do and hoping to look at is what is the efficacy of standardized tests? What is the place and the role for it? Because for some folks, right, it is a door opener, right? Um, and for others, you know, it's not actually assessing all of what is needed that can make them successful. So how do we do that? So I guess the approach that I'm taking is, you know, can we put it on the table and take a look at it? Mm -hmm. and really see how we are living up at, to our mission because our mission is all about um, equity and access. And how does this really fit in? Um, that's something I brought up um, during the interview and they hired me anyway, so I'm guessing it's on the table, um, but we shall see in the future um, you know, what we come up with. But I, I do um, feel that there are ways that we can be innovative um, and, and creative and create access. Well, I think it is so indicative of LSAC's and your own commitment to equal access and opportunity for all when uh, the, I think the, the primary purpose for many, many years of LSAC was as the administrator of the LSAT. And you're, you're looking at the very foundation um, that uh, those deans and LSAC created a long time ago as entrance to the profession. But you're questioning, is that the gate opener as um, Kelly Testy puts it, that it should be or could be. So um, good for you. I, I look forward to seeing what you guys uh, 
figure out as far as standardized testing or possible alternative pathways. So I am going to ask you about the future of legal education or where you see it's going, but before that, I have it on good authority. I should ask you about Yvonne the dog. <laughs> oh, yes, she is a sweetheart. So um, Yvonne is my seeing eye dog, and she has been my faithful partner and guide for, oh, goodness, just over 10 years now. Oh, and she'll be having, I know, she'll be having her 12th birthday in December, and she's wonderful. And what kind of dog is she? She is a Black Lab Golden Retriever mix, so oh. a beautiful combination of wonderful breeds. <laughs> tells you and wonderful personalities, them. right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Gentle and always has something in her mouth for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I will never starve. She will always find food for us. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, I hope to meet her someday. Uh, before we wrap up, and, and as with all the guests I've had, I could just talk to you for a long time. Um, I, I find your experience so interesting and your, your viewpoints and uh, your hopefulness and inspiration um, really exciting. But we'll have to put some of the conversation off for another day. Where do you see legal education going in, let's say, the next 10 years? Um, what evolution do you predict legal education will undergo during that time? One thing that I think will happen, and it's already happening, is I think DEI is going to be incorporated into the curriculum. And so what I mean by that are two things. One, I think there's going to be a more intentional focus on talking about the hard things in case law. So when cases come up, that you're actually looking at them, not from a colorblind lens, but also looking at the racial implications, looking at the implications um, for sexual orientation and identity, right? So I think that's going to come into the curriculum and how um, faculty teach law, right? Being able to teach it from different perspectives, um, which is happening now. And I think that's going to just improve and increase um, over the years. I think the other thing that is going to happen are that some of the softer skills, which aren't really that soft, they're actually quite difficult to learn and master, mm -hmm. are going to come into the curriculum, um, like perspective taking, right? L like um, understanding, like if you're going to be an attorney and you're going to represent clients, what does that mean when your client has a different lived experience? How do you meet and understand that person from where they are? How do you um, provide legal service in a way that is equitable and inclusive? I think that's going to come into the curriculum even more. Um, and I think it's going to be demanded both from the student population, and it's also going to be demanded from um, by employers. Um, who are going to be looking for attorneys that have um, a broader skill set and not just being able to think like an attorney, which is really, really important and which law schools do extremely well. But I think law schools even want to be able to create and to educate attorneys, not only how to practice, but how to practice well and to practice for the way that society is now, which is way more diverse um, than it has ever been. And we've got to, as a profession, meet that demand and meet our our you know fellow citizens where they are and with their lived experiences and backgrounds. So I think that's going to be incorporated into legal education more and more. Well, I think your predictions are very accurate 
and I know that LSAC, uh, with your leadership, will be supporting law schools as they uh, add those enriching aspects to their curriculum. And so I thank you for your efforts in advance, and I look forward to watching them. I appreciate your being with me, Angela. It's been an absolute pleasure, Patty. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. This has been another episode of Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. Ed Up Legal is part of the Ed Up Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at Ed Up, we make education your business.